Please remain standing in honor of God's word. We're continuing on through the book of Proverbs. And this morning I have a few different Proverbs to look at. We'll look at Proverbs 10, verses 1 through 5. And then I'll read Proverbs 12, verse 24. And then Proverbs 13, verse 4. This is God's inspired, inerrant, authoritative word. The Proverbs of Solomon. A wise son makes a glad father. But a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the craving of the wicked. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. Proverbs 12, 24, the hand of the diligent will rule, while the slothful will be put to forced labor. Proverbs 13, 4, the soul of a sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we ask that as your word goes forth, your Holy Spirit will give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to embrace your truth. Paul tells us that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We ask that by way of your word and spirit this morning, you will equip us for the good works that you have for us to do. And we ask these things with great confidence because we ask them in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. In the 1730s, a mighty revival took place in the American colonies known as the Great Awakening. Jonathan Edwards was one of the human instruments through which God worked to bring about a great revival. Uh, the English preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones had this to say about Jonathan Edwards in the mountain range of church history. He said, I am tempted to compare the Puritans to the Alps, Luther and Calvin to the Himalayas, and Jonathan Edwards to Mount Everest. He seems to be the man most like the Apostle Paul. Even if you disagree with his assessment, that is still quite the tribute. Obviously, Jonathan Edwards was a gifted man. If you know anything about him, he truly was a genius, and many have called him the greatest theologian and philosopher to ever walk on American soil. But what from the human side accounts for his greatness? Giftedness alone is not the answer. We all know of highly gifted people who only squandered their talents and opportunities. The foundation for his life and ministry was established in the years 1922 to 1923 when Edwards was just 18 and 19 years old. During that period, Jonathan Edwards wrote his now famous 70 Resolutions. The first four resolutions lay the foundation, and they speak about his commitments to the glory of God. Number one, resolved 
that I will do whatsoever I think to be most for God's glory. He thought that was the appropriate place to start, and I agree 100%. Number two, resolved to be continually endeavoring to find some new invention and contrivance to promote the aforementioned things, namely the glory of God. Number three, resolved, if ever I shall fall and grow dull, so as to neglect to keep any part of these resolutions, to repent of all I can remember when I come to myself again. Isn't that great? As soon as you realize I'm becoming dull and I'm not striving for God's glory like I should. To repent right away. Number four, resolved never to do any manner of thing, whether in soul or body, less or more, but what tends to the glory of God. Jonathan Edwards laid the foundation at the beginning of his life. Everything that I do will be to promote the glory of God. And again, as I said, he wrote these resolutions when he was 18 and 19 years old. I won't tell you what was driving me when I was 18 and 19 years old, but it wasn't the glory of God. Now, following these introductory resolutions, Edwards goes on to say, number five, resolved never to lose one moment of time, but improve it in the most profitable way I possibly can. Number six, resolved to live with all my might while I do live. And just before he began to enumerate these 70 resolutions, he wrote, Remember to read over these resolutions once a week. So every week he sought to remind himself, this is what I have resolved to do before God. And it began with living for God's glory, and then the next step was to be the worker that God was calling him to be. And I think it's good to remind ourselves that the ultimate purpose of our lives is to glorify God. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Exactly. And one of the ways in which we glorify God is via hard work. By working diligently with the gifts that God has called us to use. In other words, we are to imitate our Lord. In John 17, 4, at the end of Jesus' life, he prays to the Father, and in part, this is what he prayed. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Wouldn't it be wonderful to come to the end of your day, or the end of the week, or the month, or the year, or your life, and to be able to pray to God, I have sought to bring you glory on earth by completing the work that you gave me to do. That's what Jesus did. And we are to follow in his footsteps. And to that end this morning, I want to give you what I'm going to call a theology of work. It'll be a brief theology, but that's what it'll be. 
a theology of work. And if you're taking notes, I have first, I have four points. Number one, created to work. Number two, saved to work. Number three, equipped to work. And number four, rewarded for work. So let's begin with the fact that we were created to work. We need to remember that our call to work is not a consequence of the fall. Hard, sweaty, back-breaking work with thorns and thistles getting in our way is due to sin, but not work itself. Even if there was the fall, we'd still have to trim trees and cut them down. But perhaps it's because of the fall that the branch will fall and hit us in the nose, giving us a big cut on our nose, so that everybody walking in church on Sunday morning can say, what happened to you? That's a result of the fall. But work itself is not a result of the fall. Our summons to labor is due to God making man, male and female, in his own image and likeness. This is what we read in Genesis 1, 26 and following. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is commonly known as the dominion mandate or the cultural mandate. God creates Adam and Eve and he says, you see all this creation before you? Exercise dominion over it. I like what uh, Charles Spurgeon says about this mandate. What is man that, she, that he should have a sun, moon, and stars planted in the firmament for him? What was man that he should have the rule of the world given to him? that he should be Lord over the fish of the sea, over the beasts of the fields, and over fowls of the air, all which may be understood of man as created in the image of God. So we're creating God's image, and we reflect God by working and exercising dominion over creation and by being rulers underneath him. I'm sure most of you are familiar with the Fourth commandment, which is in part why you are here this morning. Exodus 20, beginning at verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. So I like to ask question, this question, why did it take God so long to recreate the world? It took him six whole days. Because God could have just snapped his fingers and there was the world. But the answer is given in the commandment right here. He worked for six days, rested on the seventh day, giving us an example to follow. 
So now we work for six days, and then on the seventh day, we also rest. Now think of the assignment that Adam was giving. Exercise dominion over this world that I've just created. In order to do that, he's going to need a little help. So God does help him. Genesis 2.18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And then he fashioned Eve from his rib in order to be a helper. Now, this may not sound very romantic, <laughs> but Eve was created to help Adam in the task that he had given him by exercising dominion over creation. And obviously, if he was going to be fruitful and multiply, he could not do that all by himself. He needed help. Now, let me clarify. This is not to say that God is anti-romance, okay? So for all you romantics out there, God is not against that. In fact, if you read through the book of Song of Songs, even a cursory reading will help you to see that God is not against romance or love within marriage. Uh, nevertheless, he's given a helper to help him with the task, the work that God has given him to do. And according to Psalm 8, this dominion over the works of God's hands is man being crowned with glory and honor. And that's what he is given. So here's the question I have to ask you. Are you glorifying God with the work that he has given you to do? Is that your objective? Are you also resolved to carry out that work? We were created to work. Number two, we were saved to work. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. That's a beautiful word. It's poema in the Greek. We get the English word poem. It could also be translated, we are his masterpieces, his works of art. And what did he create us for? We're told. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So while we are not saved by works, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, but we are saved unto good works. And God has prepared good works for us in advance that we should walk in them. This is part of our salvation. It's interesting, when you read 1 Timothy 5, 9 through 10, the context is about widows. And which widows should be placed on enrollment for the church to, be, to take care of and which widows shouldn't. And this is what we read. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, because if she's younger than that, she still has work to do, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works. Isn't that interesting? 
she should have a reputation for being a woman who did good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. In, sh in short, enroll her, take care of her, provide for her if her life has been one characterized by good works, which indicates at the very least that's what we're called to do. And when we become 60 years old, we should be able to look back and say, yes, that's what I've devoted myself to. And not only that, but other people should be able to look back and say, yes, that's what this person has devoted themselves to, a life of good works, which means a life that looks a lot like our Lord Jesus. In Mark 10, 45, you may recall that in the context, it was one of those occasions where the disciples are walking along the road and they're arguing about which one of them is the greatest. Can you imagine such a thing? That'd be like hearing an argument in the foyer after the service. Who's the greatest Christian in this church? I think I am. I mean, can you, can you imagine such a thing? And Jesus says, what were you guys talking about on the way? And they were silent. Because all of a sudden they're, they're completely embarrassed and, of course, Jesus says, whoever's going to be the greatest among you must be the servant of all. And then in Mark 10, 45, Jesus says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that's our calling. We have been created. We have been saved in order that we can be servants to other people and, and lay down our lives if necessary. So that's, that's why you were saved. So again, I have to ask, are you doing those good works? God has good works for you. He has ordained good works in advance for, for you to do. He has good works for you to do this afternoon. They may not be big and gigantic, but he has good works for you. In the upcoming week, God has good works for you to do. You've been created for those good works. You've been saved for those good works. Number three, you have been equipped for those good works. If you and I are going to do these good works, we need help. Before Jonathan Edwards got to his 70 resolutions, this is what he wrote in, in his preface. He said, being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions. I like that. He lays out his resolutions, like maybe we do at the beginning of the year. New Year's resolution, right? This is what I'm resolved to do. Jonathan Edwards had these resolutions, but he realizes, unless God empowers me to carry these out, I'm not going to be able to do it in my, own, in my own strength. But we need to understand God has equipped us. First of all, he's equipped us through his word. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, this was a part of my, my opening prayer. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 
So why has God given us this book? So we could read it, study it, meditate on it, memorize it, understand the theology of it, the doctrines that are included in it. But when we have done all that, we're not done until we actually put it into practice and it manifests itself in our lives and how we live, specifically good works that God has for us to do. This book is designed to equip us, not just to give us big brains that are full of information, but to give us hands and feet and bodies that will go and do the works that God has called us to do so that we can make a difference in this world. We have also been equipped by God's gifts. 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. We just presented seven new members to you this morning, and when they go through the membership class, we have them do a spiritual gifts assessment test. And, and we ask them, what spiritual gifts do you think God has, has given you? And we're just curious as where they would like to serve. But here's what I know. If you're a Christian, you have at least one gift, probably more than one gift. And why has God given you that gift? So that you can use it, <laughs> right? If God gives you a guitar, what does he want you to do with that guitar? Hanging on the shelf so it looks nice. He wants you to play it. God gives you a gift. He wants you to use it, to employ it in his service. And we love asking people, what gifts has God given you? Because if possible, in this church, we want to help people to use their gifts so that they can be fulfilled in what God's called, called them to do and they can glorify God. And I'm aware you don't have to just serve in the church. You can use your gifts outside of the church and Maybe even most of them are outside the church. But regardless, God has given us spiritual gifts so that we can use them in what he's calling us to do. And he has also equipped us with his spirit. You were given the spirit in part so that you could work. You were given the spirit in part so that you could do the hard work that he's calling you to do. Paul, 1 Corinthians 1, 28-29 says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. And here he's talking about the power of the Holy Spirit. Yes, it, it's his work. It's his energy. It's his struggle. He was tired at night. Our Lord was tired sometimes. I was just reading once again about the account where he fell asleep in the back of the boat. Some of you will remember. And then there was a huge storm that come up suddenly on the Sea of Galilee. And the disciples panicked. like, Lord, don't you care? We're about to, to perish. Jesus is sleeping in the back. And the commentator pointed out, why was Jesus sleeping? Because he was exhausted from all the teaching and ministering that he was doing. So he said, this is a great opportunity to take a nap and refresh myself. So even Jesus got tired in his humanity 
But we're given the Spirit so that we can work. That's why Jesus was given the Spirit in part. Acts 10, 38. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Why did Jesus begin his ministry at the age of 30? Why not 29, 28, 20, 27? Why 30? Because that's when the anointing for ministry came upon him in power, and then he had the strength to do what God was calling him to do. But we Christians also have been anointed with the Spirit so that we have power beyond our own natural abilities to do what God is calling us to do. So we are to work. And Proverbs has a lot to say about working and being diligent with our hands. And on the negative side, it has a lot of rebukes about when we don't work, which can be stinging if you read them. I, I remember one time when I, when I was in college, I think I was taking a nap, and, and one of my good friends, and he really is a good friend, I was the best man at his wedding, but he, ca he came into my room while I was napping, and he quoted Proverbs 6, 9 to 11. He said, how long will you lie there, oh sluggard? And I'm like, I'm like, I'm like waking up, and he says, when will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a robber and want like an armed man. And he quoted that proverb to me. And I'm like, ouch, I'm just taking a nap. That was like 35 years ago, and I still haven't forgot it. I mean, that, that really stung. Why did, why did that sting? Because that's, that's an insult. Now, he was kidding. He was joking. I think he wanted to do something really important, like go play basketball, but still kind of stung. It's like, man, I don't, I don't want to be like that. We've, we've been created to work, saved to work, e equipped to work. This is what God's calling us to do, and we, we need to get at it. And then number four, we will be rewarded for this work in this life and the life to come. And there, there are many Proverbs that that talk about rewards. Let me just give you a few. First of all, riches and wealth. Proverbs 10:4. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Proverbs 12:27. Whoever is slothful will not roast his game, but the diligent man will get precious a little diligence goes a long way, believe it or not. I'll give you another story from college. I, I worked at Maury Mages Sports. And, and for a guy who's in the sports, that was kind of a fun job, to be honest with you. It was seven floors of, of sporting goods. And because I played hockey when I was younger, I learned to uh, uh, sharpen the blades of hockey, hockey uh, skates and other things. But it, it was kind of fun. But here's what I learned working there. It was amazing how many workers there didn't show up. I mean, really, it took place on a, on a regular basis. They just, they didn't show up. And I just had a vivid illustration of this isn't a hard job. You know what? All you have to do is show up. You know, somebody walks in, you know, hey, I'd like a basketball. Where can I find a basketball? Let me show you. The basketballs are right over here. 
What kind of ball would you like? I mean, it's, it's not a hard job. All you have to do is show up. But it's amazing how many, how many people wouldn't. Here's another reward. I'm going to call this one soul satisfaction. Proverbs 13.4. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. And that doesn't just have to be with money. You can be richly supplied with many things, a blessing that God gives to the soul of the diligence. One more. You can be rewarded with being a ruler and not a slave. Maybe I should just ask. If you had the choice, you can be a ruler or you can be a slave. Which would you like? Proverbs 12, 24. The hand of the diligent will rule while the slothful will be put to forced labor. I had fun teaching this proverb to my high school Bible class a few years back. <laughs> Asking this class, guys, you want to be rulers when you go out into the world? Or do you want slaves? You want people ruling over you, getting out the whip, telling you what you... Guess what? The choice is yours, class. The choice is yours. If you're diligent, the vast majority of you will have the blessing of ruling. But if you're lazy, I'm telling you, based on God's word, this is what's waiting for you. You want to be diligent. You want to be a hard worker. And by the way, diligence isn't just your nine-to-five job. Being diligent is a lifestyle. To get to work on time, for example, you can't stay up half the night playing video games or watching movies on Netflix. You need to say once in a while, it's past my bedtime. Michelle and I do that. We're like, it's 8 o'clock. <laughs> you guys are laughing. I'm not even kidding. But, but everybody, everybody has a different schedule. That's not the point. But the point is you keep a good schedule. Get to bed at a decent time if you have to get up at a decent time. You need to manage your time well. If you stay up half the night, you're going to have trouble getting to work on time. And even if you do get to work on time, how much energy are you going to have? I, re I remember a few, few years ago, this, pers this person isn't here any longer, but I remember there was, there was a guy here in his, his 40s, and he's like, oh, I am so tired this morning. I'm just dragging. I was like, oh. Why are you so tired? He's like, ah, oh, I was up till 2, 3 o'clock in the morning playing video games. And I'm like, oh, you're killing me. What, what are you doing staying up till 2, 3 o'clock in the morning when we got church today? You need to be refreshed because I have a message for you. And too bad that Sunday I wasn't on diligent work. got to have some kind of schedule. So if, if you want to be a ruler, first you have to master yourself. First person you have to rule is right here. You have to rule yourself. You have to rule your desires, your finances, your tongue, your schedule, your health. You begin ruling there and being diligent in those areas. And I'll tell you, it doesn't take a whole lot. And you will find yourself in places of rulership over other people, perhaps. So Solomon says, master yourself. If you don't, 
Somebody else will. Guarantee it. There are also rewards in the life to come. Not only in this life, but also in life to come. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells the parable of the talents. I won't go through the whole parable, but the short of it is um, a man goes away on a journey, but before he goes, he gives his servants talents. To one, he gives five talents. To another, he gives two talents. And another, he gives one talent. And he says, I want you to take these talents, and I want you to put them to work for me. I want you to invest what I have entrusted to your care. And after I go away on a long journey, I'm going to come back, and I'm going to see what you did with the talents that I entrusted to your care. I'm going to see if you were a wise steward or not. And then, sure enough, the master comes back, and he says to the one who was given five talents, okay, what did you do with my talent? And he says, Master, I used your five talents, and I gained five talents more. And the master, Jesus, says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much Enter into the joy of your master. And then he comes to the one who was given two talents. He says, what have you done while I was away with the two talents that I entrusted to your care? And he says, master, I have gained two more talents. And he likewise said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in a little. I will place you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And then he came to the one who was given the one talent. And he said, and you, what did you do with the one talent that I entrusted to your care? And he said, oh, I know you're, you're a harsh master. So I took your one talent and I buried it in the ground. Here's your talent. And this is what the master said. You wicked and slothful servant, you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast that worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The fact that the talent was squandered shows that he really didn't put faith in Christ. We're not saved by our works once again, but we will be judged by our works. And we want to put our talents to good use for Jesus. And guess what? God can give out talents how, however he wants. There are ten talent people. There are seven talent people, five talent people, two talent people. And then there's people like me, one talent. Maybe you can get one talent Whatever it is, it doesn't matter. Put that talent to use. And here's what I want to say. Do not despise ordinary work, ordinary ministry. I remember a few years ago, I don't know why this, this came up, but people were talking about having a significant ministry. I never did like that. 
They're like, I want a significant ministry, reminding me of what happened during COVID when we were told that some people were essential workers while other people were not essential workers. Well, if you're providing for your family with your work, guess what? Your family thinks it's essential. And more importantly, God thinks it's essential and God thinks it's important. So I don't really like this thing, significant ministry. Guess what? If you're changing dirty diapers to the glory of God, like my daughter is doing for my grandchild, guess what? That is significant work. That is work that will be rewarded at the judgment. You took care of this child. You took care of that poopy diaper when Papa wouldn't do it. <laughs> God, God rewards everything. And I, I'm, I'm half joking, but you know I'm utterly serious. Anything that's done for the glory of God is going to be rewarded. We're going to be surprised when we get to the judgment and the people who are way up front, we're going to be like, who is he? Who, who is she? How many books did he ever write? What kind of church did he ever pastor? Was he involved in missions work? What, what did he do? Oh, you never noticed him because he was behind the scenes. He felt called to be an intercessor on behalf of the work of the ministry, and you have no idea what he did. But every time he got down on his knees and he poured out his heart to God prayer, I saw it. And he is up front because of the great and mighty work that he did in my sight. And some other people that you think might be up front, maybe they're going to be in the back. And you're like, why are they so far back? Maybe they weren't doing it for God and his glory. But you, you, you will be rewarded. What's at stake in our hard work? The, the glory of God is at stake. We want to do what God has called us to do. We want to do it with all our might. And I, I don't want to leave you retired people out. We have a number of people in here who are retired. You still have work to do. Don't feel like, oh, we're put on a shelf. I understand all the caveats. I, I understand there's health issues and, and you slow down. I'm, I'm realistic when it comes to that. God, God understands that. But we, we want to work right up to the very end. John Piper has a wonderful biography about Charles Simeon and this English pastor encourages me for, for so many reasons, and I don't have time to get into all of them, but I just want to share one story with you about when he was 60 years old and he was planning on retiring. Piper says, in 1807, after 25 years of ministry, his health failed suddenly. His voice gave way so that preaching was very difficult, and at times he could only speak in a whisper. This broken condition lasted for 13 years until he was 60 years old. The way this weakness came to an end is remarkable. He tells the story that in 1819, when he was on his last visit to Scotland, as he crossed the border, he says he was almost perceptibly revived in strength as the woman was after he had touched the hem of our Lord's garment. His interpretation of God's providence in this begins 
back before the weakness had befallen him in 1807. Up till then, he had promised himself a very active life up to the age of 60, and then a Sabbath rest, in other words, retirement. Now he seemed to hear his master saying, I laid you aside because you entertained with satisfaction the thought of resting from your labor. But now you have arrived at the very period when you have promised yourself that satisfaction and have determined instead to spend your strength for me to the last hour of your life. I have doubled, tripled, quadrupled your strength that you may execute your desire on a more extended plan. God said, you're going to serve me? I'm going to double, triple, quadruple your strength so that you can serve me with vigor and energy till the day you die. So at 60 years of age, Simeon renewed his commitment to his pulpits and the local and global mission of the church and preached vigorously for 17 more years until two months before his death. Surely there is a lesson for us here concerning retirement. And then I'll spare you what Piper says about those who are thinking of retiring. No, I won't. Is there any biblical warrant for the modern Western assumption that old age or retirement are to be years of coasting or easing up or playing? I am not aware of such a principle in the Bible. In fact, it is a great sadness to see so many older Christians adapting to this cultural norm and wasting the last decades of their life in innocent lounging around. Now, once again, the caveat, I understand health concerns, illness, I'm realistic. At the same time, as long as we have breath, we are still called to serve with whatever strength God may give us and whatever ministry God may give us. Even if in our minds the ministry is ordinary, small, relatively insignificant. If God has us here, if we're still breathing, if we're still alive, God has work for us to do. Let's be about this work. And it's not in vain. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. My beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So whatever God has called you to do, put your hand to the plow and don't look back. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the teaching of your word. Indeed, it does teach us and rebuke us and correct us and train us in righteousness for the good works that you have for us to do. Father, forgive us for our slothfulness when we are not diligent in carrying out the work that you have for us to do. And perhaps like Charles Simeon, maybe we need to recommit ourselves to doing what you have called us to do. Father, continue to equip us and empower us for the work that you have for us to do. 
and help us, as Martin Luther said, to live every day in light of that day, the day in which we will stand before you and give an account of the talents that you have trusted to our care. Father, may we all be driven by a desire to hear one day, well done, good and faithful servant. In Christ's name, amen.